Hello, welcome to another edition of the Gospel Mailbox. I'm Donnie Bryson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always get in touch with us via the internet, www.gospelmailbox.org, or you can write us via post, the Gospel Mailbox, P.O. Box 2446, Chattanooga, Tennessee, 37409, or you can call me at 423-521-0738. want to welcome you to our new series. We're going to be talking about the basic, some basic doctrines of the Bible. And to start off the series, I'm going to review some things that I had originally preached at uh, Calvary Assembly of God in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, back about four years ago. And the title of the sermon is, What is Truth? And the series that we're going to be going over, uh, starting into going into this new year, the series will be going over the basic doctrines of the Bible. And we're going to be doing this in somewhat of a, of a systematic um, method as we approach it. So I guess in a way we could say that we're doing uh, uh, we're doing more of a little bit like systematic theology. But I'm going to try really hard not to let this get too academic because the doctrines of the Bible should be addressed by Every Christian, it's very important what we believe. And as an introduction to this series, as I said, I'm going to be uh, gleaming from some notes from my sermon, What is Truth? And if you miss some of the things that I'm saying, uh, please feel free to come to the website. The uh, sermon is actually written out on the website so you can pick up some of the information. Uh, that we're talking about. But take your Bible and turn over to John the 18th chapter starting in the 33rd verse and we have that famous question that Pilate, as you remember it was the time when Jesus and Pilate were together. And some people say that uh, Jesus was before Pilate and other people say Pilate was actually before Jesus because he is the king of kings and the judge of the world. But anyway, the, the famous question from Pilate, what is truth? And we want to tonight, or this afternoon, consider uh, two big questions. What is truth and how can we find it? So if we look in John, the 18th chapter, starting with the 33rd verse. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself? Or did others tell it, of, tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. 
that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And that Greek word there is aletheia. It has several shades of meaning. It can mean what is true in any matter under consideration. In other words, it's the opposite of the idea of false. Aletheia can also be the quality of a man's character and was used like that in the Greek language. A man was aletheia if he was free from pretense, falsehood, or deceit. And in that sense, aletheia corresponds pretty closely to our phrase, true blue, where we would say he is true blue. A Greek person would say he is aletheia. And I want you to keep both shades of that meaning in your mind as we talk about this. But what is truth and, and how can we find it? There are many different paradigms used in the quest for truth. Scientists use their methods. Philosophers use their own methods. Policemen use their own methods. And we Christians use our own methods. Our methods have been called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But it doesn't matter what we call it. It's more important to know its components and their relative weight. Now, the Wesleyan quadrilateral has four main components. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Each of these components is important, but they don't carry the same weight. You see, Scripture is the only infallible source of truth, yet we, we also need those other three components. Scriptures would be meaningless if we read them in a vacuum. Now, let's say we read the story of Peter denying the Lord, and we are having trouble understanding it. We might need to remember one of our own times of failing. Or we might need to remember a sermon we heard. Or we might need to remember a book we read. Or we might need to use our own reason to ponder issues in the story. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience may not be equal sources for truth, but each has its own particular place. First, let's consider the Scriptures. The Scriptures were very clear about themselves. The psalmist writes, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Jesus said, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. He later said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Scriptures claim to be infallible and errant. But let's consider for a moment what we consider by inerrant. See, inerrancy means the Bible is 100% true. But we have to place that concept within the context of the language and the customs of the time. You see, friends, it's silly to superimpose our language and our customs on the text. The text means what, is it, what it was intended to mean at the time it was written. 
For example, at the great flood of Noah, the Bible says, 15 cubits upward did the water prevail. And it would be really silly for us to claim the Bible would be in error in error if the flood water actually prevailed the 14.999932 cubits. Why would that be silly? There's an implied degree of precision in the phrase 15 cubits. What Moses meant when he wrote that was that the water was greater than 15.5 cubits and less than 15.5. It was, excuse me, it was greater than 14.5 cubits and less than 15.5 cubits. That same type of issue holds true for time. There's several interesting discussions regarding the meaning three days in the grave. But we have many things to discuss, and I'm going to gloss over that. But three days in the grave basically means they were three portions of a day that Jesus was in the grave. It does not mean that they were three full 24-hour periods Jesus was in the grave. Now, Revelation says, the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. And when we stop and think of our scientific idea of a star as 21st century people, we mean a star to be a faraway sun. So how could stars fall from the heavens? We see it's real simple if we understand the word that is used, the Greek word astor, if we, if we remember how that word was used at the time of John the Revelator. See, aster is the same word we get asteroid from. So when it says that the stars fall from the sky, they could mean a, fall, a meteorite or a falling star, or it could mean an a missile could mean a lot of things. It is some object, some bright reflective object falling from the sky. There are many different versions of the Bible circulate today, and not all of them agree on every single thing. So what version of the Bible is infallible? It's a touchy subject. Conservative evangelical Christians hold that the original parchments that came from the writer's hand is infallible. Those original documents are called the autographs. Versions are infallible. Hear me when I say this. Versions are infallible only to the degree they match the original autograph. Now some would ask, why is the Bible infallible? The answer is simple. The author can't make a mistake. Paul wrote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That phrase is given by inspiration of God, is one word in the original. Theopnostus, God breathed. 
I picture God breathing through those ancient writers like a musician blowing on his horn. The horn only plays what the great musician imagined. God breathed, Peter wrote, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Not by the will of man. That leaves nothing that can be minimized, nothing that can be discarded, nothing that can be ignored. Every word, every jot, every tittle is the word of God. But we come back to our original questions. What is truth? It's a trait and it's facts. How can I and how can I find it? Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now let's consider tradition. Tradition is what is or has been taught and generally accepted in the church. Tradition includes creeds, sermons, Sunday school lessons, seminary lectures, informal Bible discussions, Christian books, and Christian magazine articles. Tradition plays an important role in the church. Tradition helps move us toward the mainstream, and tradition helps move us away from the bazaar. Let's say someone quotes the book of Numbers. Bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and they put on the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord. Now let's say they tell us that we must wear a blue ribbon on our pants to know the Bible. It's tradition that tells us that this person has went off the deep end. Another example, let's say someone quotes the Lord when he says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now let us now now let's imagine someone tells us, while their church was founded only a hundred years ago and has less than a hundred thousand members, they're the one true church, and everyone else is the sheep of another fold. It's tradition that tells us that they've went off the deep end. Now let's think about another example. Let's say someone brings us brings out a box of rattlesnakes and a little snake for a little snake handling. Even if we know nothing about tempting God, tradition tells us they've went off the deep end. Now of course tradition isn't infallible. And it sure can act as a but it sure can act as a valuable caution meter. The further away from the mainstream folks try to take us, the more we need to pray, to study, and to ponder. But tradition can also get us into a lot of trouble. For example, Christ told the scribes and the Pharisees, why do ye also transgress the commandment of men by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honoreth not his father or his mother, he shall be free. That phrase, 
it is a gift by tradition indicated that son that the son's possessions were willed to the temple and when he died his position his possessions were earmarked for the temple so he couldn't spend his gift to support his parents those hypocrites could disobey god's command to honor their father and mother and do it while being ultra religious traditions are fallible and they can actually be destructive they can lead us into sin however a tradition is not wrong because it's a tradition a tradition is wrong when it runs contrary to the Word of God but still traditions are important for example the Bible consists of 66 different books the church debated from 90 AD to about 367 AD in order to arrive at our list of those 66 books everyone today accepts that list of 66 books by tradition traditions are important now let's come back to our questions what is truth and how can we find it now let's consider reason in the Old Testament reason wisdom and understanding were translated from the Hebrew word kokmah kokmah carries many shades of meaning skill in war managerial craft shrewdness discernment and spiritual wisdom God failed filled Bezaliel and Aholiab with a spirit of wisdom to make beautiful items for the tabernacle God filled the women of that day with wisdom so they could spin goat's hair for that same tabernacle later we see a young King Solomon ask God for wisdom to rule the Israelites God certainly granted Solomon the desire of his heart Solomon's judgments were so profound that the Bible says all Israel feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment Proverbs says for wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it James said if any man if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him Paul warns us that brethren be not children in understanding howbeit in malice be ye children but in understanding be men wisdom is desirable wisdom is commanded and wisdom is promised but wisdom reason understanding intellect logic whatever we call it has its limitations the prophet Isaiah said for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways saith the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts some doctrines such as the Trinity are beyond our ability to understand A.H. Strong called these doctrines supra rational doesn't contradict reason but it goes beyond reason
And there seems to be warfare between philosophy or secular wisdom in the church. The church has had this love-hate relationship with philosophy for 2,000 years. The early church patriarch, Tertullian said, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? In other words, what did the Hebrew scriptures have to do with Greek philosophy? Tertullian was complaining about folks using Greek philosophy. And then he went on using the same philosophical devices in almost all of his writings. And as I said, the church has had some kind of weird love-hate relationship with philosophy. And we need to go back to the original Greek to understand that tension between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. There are two basic words used for wisdom in the New Testament. Sophia and phronesis. Lightfoot said, "With while Sophia is the insight into the true nature of things, phronesis is the ability to discern modes of action with a view on their results. While Sophia is theoretical, phronesis is practical. Now, Sophia is used to describe both spiritual and worldly wisdom. Theoretical knowledge can be useful or it can be vain. It's Sophia that is used in the phrase, full of Holy Ghost and wisdom, when the apostles listed the requirements for those first deacons. The church was to seek out men full of Sophia. But it's also Sophia that's used when James said, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him shew out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if he, if he, if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For while envying and strife is, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is shown in, sown in peace of them that make peace. It's Sophia that Paul used when he said, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Theoretical knowledge, even theoretical knowledge of the Bible, can be damaging if it makes us puffed up in pride. See, unlike theoretical wisdom, phronesis or practical wisdom is always spiritual. It's practical wisdom that Paul used in brethren. Be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Practical wisdom always brings us closer to God. Theoretical wisdom helps us understand God. Worldly wisdom just blinds us with horrible pride. Now coming back to our original questions, what is truth? And we've it's a trait and it's facts. And how can we find it? Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Now, let's consider experience. 
While Scripture is the most important source of information because it's infallible, experience is the most important part with regard to our life. We can, we can know all the Bible verses for salvation, but if we don't accept Jesus into our hearts, we're going to hell. We can know all the Bible verses about backbiting, but if we talk about everyone in the church, the minute we get in the car, then God will still bring our words back on us. We can know all the Bible verses about paying tithes, but if we still withhold our tithe, then God will still put a curse on our finances. The most important source for truth is the Bible, and the most important place for that truth is in our lives. And we have these three, what I call the three E's of experience. Epiphany, event, and exercise. Let's talk for a minute about epiphany. When we're talking about the holidays, the holiday on January the 6th, now we're not talking about the, excuse me, we're not talking about the holiday on January the 6th. Epiphany, as we're using it tonight, refers to an experience. It's a divine manifestation of God. Epiphanies can be spectacular or quiet. God appeared to Abraham in Haran and told him to get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will shew thee. Abraham had a spectacular epiphany. At the foot of Mount Horeb, the voice of God thundered out to Moses, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses had a spectacular epiphany at the burning bush. At the outskirts of Damascus, the voice of the resurrected Christ called out to Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? Paul had a spectacular epiphany on the road to Damascus. It was epiphany when the Holy Ghost conviction compelled me to rise to my feet, go down to an altar, and ask Jesus Christ in my heart. It was epiphany the night I received the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Dramatic epiphany still happened. My Damascus road seems just as dramatic to me as Paul seemed to him. My upper room seems just as dramatic to me as Peter's upper room seemed to him. Dramatic epiphanies still happen. But epiphanies don't have to be dramatic to still be epiphanies. Some are calm and tranquil. Paul talks about the relationship between our understanding and the work of the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God hath received them unto us by the Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The Holy Ghost works as our intuition, and the Holy Ghost works with our intuition. But listen closely and heed this warning. Not all mystical experiences are epiphanies. Consider the man who lived in the land of the Gadarenes by the Sea of Galilee. He started hearing voices. The voices might have been making him promises. The voices might have been making him threats. The Bible doesn't say if his possession started by threat or promise, but it started by some type of mystical encounter. 
The man knew he wasn't crazy, and he knew it wasn't his imagination. The man started befriending those voices. One day he woke up naked in the graveyard. One day this man woke up possessed. Friends, not all mystical experiences are from God. And we live in a world full of Ouija boards, astrologers, and fortune tellers. Make no mistake, there's a dark, unforeseen forces in the world. Try the spirits. Not everything that pops into your mind is God. But let's go back to our three E's. Epiphany, event, and exercise. Let's look at events. Life lessons can be hard knocks from the University of Hard Knocks, or they can be encouraging memories. Moses rehearsed the law before the assembly at Horeb. It was his last charge before turning leadership over to Joshua. The Israelites would be starting a long military campaign on the other side of Jordan. Moses told them, If thou shalt say in thine heart, These nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and to all the Egypt and the great temptations which thine eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out. So shall the Lord thy God be unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Moses was telling them to remember that God delivered them before, and he would deliver them again. You have been listening to the Gospel Mailbox from Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you'd like to contact us, you may contact us on the internet, www.gospelmailbox.org. We'll see you next weekend.